Amen. Thank you, Larry, for that good reading of God's word. Let me say a, a word just quickly about this psalm, and then we're going to pray and ask for God's blessing. Some of you may wonder, well, what's the context of this psalm? What's going on here? Uh, and you may, if you're perceptive, um, remember the story of David and Bathsheba and David's confession of sin. And that's exactly what this is, is David is writing this psalm on the back end of his great sin of adultery and then murder and just the, the all the sin that was involved with initially starting with Bathsheba and his illicit affair with her. But what's the relationship then between Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, which is an interesting question because Psalm 51 discusses the same thing. And this is the really the issue is that Psalm 51 is written, we think, scholars think, almost directly after this uh, event had taken place in David's life, this sin. So Psalm 51 is really raw in its emotion. I mean, it's immediately after. It's like the, the wound is still fresh. Psalm 32, many, many people think, many scholars think that was written more like a year later after David had had some time to reflect on, on what he had done and then God's gracious healing and redemption in his life. So the reason why they think that is because Psalm 32 begins with a maskil of David. And a maskil is a teaching. And Psalm 51.13 says, Then I will teach transgressors in their way. And so Psalm 32 is the fulfillment of Psalm 51.13, which is the teaching transgressors their way. So this morning, David is going to be our instructor and he's going to teach us about sin and its dangerous consequences, but also what Jesus can do graciously by healing us and redeeming us from our great sin. Now, one more word. We're starting a, a little mini three-week series on growing in godliness. And this morning, I'm going to launch that series with this sermon on Psalm 32, talking about the dangerous consequences of leaving sin unchecked and undealt with. And then next week, Pastor Mark is going to preach on the mortification of sin or putting sin to death from Romans 8. And then the third week, we're going to preach a sermon on new life or walking in newness of life. So a little mini-series on sin and walking in newness of life. Now this morning, it's not just going to be bad news. We will get to the gospel. But in order to see the beauty of the gospel, we need to first take serious inventory of the darkness of sin. So let's pray and let's ask for God to give us grace and help this morning as we study his word. Let's pray. Father, we have prepared our hearts. I trust we have worshipped you and we acknowledge this morning that you are worthy. And now, Lord, we want to align our lives and our circumstances and opportunities, our trials and successes, our whole life with your word. And we pray that this text would not be met with indifference or unbelief this morning, but that it would awaken faith and prepare us for whatever you would call us to do. And so we bring ourselves now under the authority of your word. Help us, help me to make much of Jesus. We pray that you would stir hearts accordingly and that you would help us to listen and to receive your word and to be changed by it. 
we believe that this is a supernatural exercise. And so get, help me to get out of the way and may the Holy Spirit come powerfully. And may you manifest your presence with us so that we'll all be helped despite my weaknesses, despite my inability, total inability to preach your word with effectiveness without your spirit. So we ask for that. We plead for it, for our good, for the good of your people and your church, and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, in uh, 1863, uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, declared a day of fasting and prayer throughout the United States. And in doing so, uh, here's what Lincoln wrote. He says this, he says, And and whereas it is the duty of nations as well as men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. It's almost hard to imagine that that's a president of the United States. I mean, we have fallen so far from that. It's quite an amazing statement, to be honest. And the interesting thing about it is that it was employed, uh, this statement, and read and employed by President Eisenhower in 1953 uh, when he declared the National Day of Prayer. But from that point on, every other president of the United States has dropped that part of Lincoln's statement. They've included other parts of Lincoln's statement, but they take out this part, presumably uh, because of the language here of sin and repentance and the exclusivity of saying things like, you know, that all that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. Talks about the Holy Scriptures, talks about repentance and faith and sin and so it's just way too poignant uh, for most people to process. And so presidents since then have dropped that. And actually, I would say probably it's been quite deliberately forced out of the public square. A good illustration of this is William Chapman, who chronicles a well-known evangelist who preached consistently on sin. And one day, uh, a leader in his church approached him, a leader, mind you, approached him and said, uh, said, sir, we don't want you to talk so plainly about sin because if our boys and girls keep hearing you talk about sin so much, they'll start sinning themselves. So call it whatever you want, pastor, but please don't speak so plainly about it. Well, the evangelist stood up. He walked over to his closet. He grabbed a little jar that had labeled on it strychnine rat poison. And he grabbed that and he looked at the man and he said, you know what you're asking me to do? You want me to change this label. You want me to take off the label that says rat poison and replace it with a milder label, something like the essence of peppermint. But, sir, the milder you make this label, the more dangerous you make the poison. And that's a good insight. And he's right. Because the more sin is redefined, the more dangerous it becomes. The truth is, sin is too expensive for us to indulge in. It does not come free of cost. We think we can freely sin, and therefore it's free 
but it's actually very, very costly. Can a man scoop live coals into his lap and not be burned? I mean, just ask King David. He, he was a man that we are told that was after God's own heart, and yet he scooped live coals into his lap and he was burned big time, big time by his sin. Just ask him. He'll, he'll tell us this morning. David, think about this, should have known better. He, he should have been at home. He should not have been at home, excuse me, alone while his men were out fighting a battle. He certainly should not have been loitering on the top of his rooftop. He, he never should have set his eyes on Bathsheba to begin with. Or if he did, he should have taken his eyes off of her and run away. He, he never should have sent for her after he saw her. He, he never should have slept with her after he sent for her. He should have known better, but David sinned. And in the process, he got another man's wife pregnant. He should have known better, but instead he stooped low enough to get Uriah drunk, hoping somehow he would sleep with his wife and conclude that this was his child and not David's. He never should have arranged for Uriah's death. He should have known better about that as well. But David sinned again and again and again, and now Uriah is dead. He should have known better. Having committed adultery with Bathsheba and orchestrated the murder of Uriah, he should have confessed his transgressions, but he didn't. He kept quiet about his sin. He, he suppressed it. He, he shoved it deep down, thinking that maybe if I just kind of get it out of my mind and out of my sight, that, you know, it, it'll be okay. Things will go away. I'll just ignore it, you know. So he ignored the tug on his heart. He denied the pain inside his conscience. He numbed his soul to the persistent cries of conviction. He, he should have known better. What a, what a tragedy. What a tragedy this is. Think about the destructive power of sin. All the good things that God had given to David now, functionally speaking, in shambles, wrecked, ruined. A man of great stature brought down to his knees through through profound sin. You know, and I can imagine David in a more tender moment. I can imagine David looking back on all this and saying, what, what can wash away my sin? I can imagine him asking that question. And maybe this morning you're wondering the same thing. Maybe you're wondering, how in the world could I, could I possibly be forgiven by a holy God? Right? There's that thing that you're thinking about right now, probably, that you know is like the dark stain on your life. You know that thing, you know what I'm talking about. That thing that nobody else knows about. That thing that maybe one person knows about. That thing that is just so shameful to you. So just, oh, it just feels so bad to think about it. You want to suppress it. You want to just move on. And But yet that thing is just there. And you ask, is it true? Can God possibly forgive me of such a thing? Can a holy God accept me despite of that? And Psalm 32 gives us the answer to that question. Now, if you're visiting with us this morning, as I said, we're in this three-part sermon series on growing in godliness. And so for the next two weeks, we're going to talk about this because as human beings, we struggle with sin. While we can be believers and having been freed from the 
from from the this bondage that we have to sin, we still struggle with it on a daily basis. So we want to talk practically about what do we do? How do we slay our sin? And I think that conversation has to get started with just a desire to slay it to begin with. A, des- a desire not to suppress it. A desire not to, but to bring it out into the open. See, here's the problem of Psalm 32. The great tragedy of Psalm 32 is that David suppressed his sin. He pressed it down. He did not deal with it. And we see the deep emotional, psychological, and spiritual consequences of doing such a thing. And my great plea to us this morning is, church, do not do that. But let's bring our sin out and confess it before God, knowing that if we do that, there is great victory. And so we'll talk about mortification. We'll talk about living and walking in newness of life. So I I trust this will be a a beneficial series to us. As David is going to teach us this morning in Psalm 32 and I should say Psalm 38, which is very parallel. David can teach us about how to look back at the sins that we've committed and find grace through confession and repentance. And I would say that David is uniquely equipped to help us this morning. I mean, after all, it was David, as I said, who penned Psalm 51, who said this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Can anything be worse than to have the feeling that God has removed his influence over your life? And then David says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. And that bit right there, I will teach transgressors their ways, is Psalm 32. So he's teaching us this morning. And while no one really wants to talk about sin, uh, we need this word of sanity in our culture. Okay, so think about this. So Hollywood, everything that is mainstream media, right, glamorizes sin, just does, just glamorizes it. But it never, ever portrays, except in a snarky way or maybe in a mocking way, but it never really portrays the anguish and the turmoil that sin creates. I mean, it's just always glorifying how great it is to just live free, live free, live, live in sin. But Psalm 32 is real. It's penetratingly real. In fact, it's a song for sinners. And so what we get to do this morning is we get to listen to what David says sin does as it festered in an unrepentant heart. And then we get to listen to David say or proclaim God's forgiving love on the back end of that. And it's all here in Psalm 32. Now, what I want to do is I want to show us from this narrative here how a person moves from disobedience to deliverance, from ruin to rescue, from guilt to grace. How do we go on that trajectory? Right. Because that's where we want to get. And 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 it's a beautiful psalm. In fact, Augustine on his deathbed had it inscribed on the wall next to his bed because he wanted to meditate on these words before he died. And and as I looked at it this week, I studied it um, in the text very carefully, and there was a just a beautiful display of Hebrew poetry. What you have here is that David is writing in he's using parallelism, and he's writing in sets of three, 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 all the way through the psalm. And what we have really is David groups his content in sets of three. Man sins in three way verses one and two. 
Uh, man repents in three ways. Verse 5, God blesses us in three ways, 7 and 8. And then we should respond to God because of his blessing in three ways, verses 9 through 11. So that's really the flow of David's thought. And let's see what we can learn from this. First, he starts by describing three ways that we've sinned against God. Look at verses 1 and 2. Look at the words that David uses in the first two verses to describe our wrongdoing. And he uses here three different Hebrew words for sin in verses 1 and 2. And and the first Hebrew word for sin isn't uh, the word oops. That's not the that's not the word. And the second word that he uses is not the word whoops. No, these are serious, tragic, heavy words to describe sin from God's perspective. And it's something that you and I do. Look at verse one. Blessed is the man whose here's the first word transgressions is forgiven. Transgression is forgiven. That first word transgression, a transgression is a departure. It means to go in a different way. It means to take a different path from the one required. The picture of a transgressor is a person who, when told to go one way, says, nah, I think I'll go the opposite way. That's a transgressor. So, I mean, the, the classic image, of course, in my mind that we get is Jonah. Right? Go to Nineveh and he's off to Tarshish. Just the opposite direction. And, and so the image here is of a raised fist to God's standard. God, you say to do this, and I say to you, nope. That's transgression. Alexander McLaren says it this way. He says, you do not understand the gravity of this word if you think of it as a sin against the order of nature or against the law written on your heart or as simply as a crime against your fellows. You have not seen the bottom or blackness of it until you see that it is nothing short of a flat rebellion Against God himself. That's transgression. The second word David uses is the word sin. Right? So this is the word that Paul uses in Romans 3.23. He says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is a word that simply means to miss the mark, to fall short. But it's, it's kind of a, it's a serious miss, right? It's not like you kind of barely miss the mark. Right. It's not like you were really, really close, but you just just man, you just kind of barely missed it. No, it's it's a, it's a massive falling short. It's a serious miss. And in fact, it's a disqualifying error. The picture is of an archer. Uh, you think of who pulls back his bow and he shoots it at the target. And not only does he miss the bullseye, but actually he just misses the target altogether. Just completely misses it. Or it's the it's the guy who's playing basketball and he's at the free throw line and he just airballs a free throw just straight down to the ground. Just not even close. And everybody laughs at him, you know, like like what a horrible shot that was. It's just so bad. It's the airball, except unlike in basketball, it's not funny. It's not funny at all. It's tragic. That's sin. And then the third word that David uses is the word iniquity. So transgression, sin. Third one is iniquity. And this is the most holistic term of the three because it means corrupt. It means twisted. It, it means crooked. It describes sin in relation to ourselves. It includes not only our failures, but it, it describes the guilt attached to it, which is often the, the worst thing about it. It feels it's just this horrible, horrible guilt. And the image here is something that's just been twisted and mangled and bent. And so when you think about these three terms together, 
All the three of these terms describe our natural condition before God. The first describes sin as God sees it, a, a transgression. The second describes sin as the law of God sees it. And, and the third describes sin in relation to ourselves. And so this, this is where the story begins. This is who we are. And the problem is that by nature, we don't realize this. We don't see ourselves the way that God sees us, which is why I said earlier that the first step in recognizing sin actually is realizing who God is. It's understanding his character. It's understanding his standard, understanding what he requires of us, because you're not going to be motivated. I can I, I can assure you to do anything about your sin but I, I'll tell you what will motivate you to do something about your sin is when you start getting a hold of who God is and his greatness and his awesomeness and his holiness. And when you start to get a feel and a flavor of how serious God is, you begin to say, I, I got to do something here about my sin. I can't just sit back and do nothing. And therefore, you start getting serious about it. Sometimes you hear people say things like, well, you know, I, I don't go to church to hear about sin. I, I go to church to hear about God. Okay, well, the fact is, if you want to hear about God, then one of the first things you'll discover about God is that in his presence, you feel unclean. You feel unclean. You will understand for the first time that no matter how highly you or others have thought about your qualities in the presence of God, all of it seems to disintegrate and you actually begin to feel kind of insecure for the first time. Maybe, maybe you're, maybe you're just a really, really hyper qualified person. Maybe everybody's always told you how great and awesome you are. You know, maybe you do have a lot of gifts. Maybe you're just really charismatic. Maybe you're really, really gifted. And you've been told your whole life how gifted and successful you are. But I can tell you that when you're in God's presence, that, all that insecurity starts to creep in. And all of a sudden, you feel like you're just nothing in his presence because God is so holy and so otherly and so awesome. And time after time in Scripture, this is what we see. When people encounter God, they feel themselves to be on the verge of collapse, of fainting in his presence. Even great men of God, even godly men. The prime example is Isaiah, who, when he experienced God's presence, what did he say? Oh, woo, boy, I really like this. This is fun. No, he says, woe, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. And that's Isaiah. That's Isaiah who, who, we're just sending out uh, missionaries to the field. This is Isaiah who was sawn in two. Under great persecution, history says. This is Isaiah, and he says, I'm a, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. Now, how can a godly man like that end up concluding something like that about himself. And I'll tell you how. It's because when he gets in the radiating presence of God, he feels himself to be utterly ruined. That's what a knowledge of God does for us. So we see this over and over in Scripture. And that's good that we see that because it shows us our need for God. So like the worst thing is to go around thinking, well, I don't really need God. I'm pretty self-sufficient. So coming in contact with God helps us Because we see our dependence and our great need for God. So God shows us our need for him. Look at verses 3 and 4. That's what 3 and 4 is all about. David says, For when I kept silent, my bones... This is great imagery. My bones wasted away through my groaning 
all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of summer. This is very transparent language. Flip over to Psalm 38. And let me just show you how he carries on this same tone. Just go a few pages over Psalm 38. And uh, just listen to some of this language. Psalm 38. He says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk deep into me, and your hand has come down on me. There's no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There's no health in my bones. There's that word bones again. Because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head like a heavy burden. They're too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning for my sides are Filled with burning and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. Wow. I mean, what descriptive language. I, I, I don't know about you, but like I've been there. Right. I, I mean, I've been there and, and, I, and I've seen the grossness of my own heart. I've seen it. I mean, I saw it yesterday morning. Yesterday, I... I went to bed late the night before, and I wake up to, give me my sword back, woo, ah, just noise, you know, and I look over, and it's 6.30 in the morning, 6.30, and I was in bed, I think, late, way past midnight, and and I, and I and I'm just thinking in my heart at that moment, I'm thinking, you know, like, I don't want to be doing this right now. So I get out of my bed very begrudgingly, walk in to my son's room. And I just said to them very sternly, you know, I'm not going to listen to you scream and yell in the morning. You can stay up, but you have to whisper. And I don't want to hear any more noise. And I shut the door, sort of frustrated. And I went back to bed. A few minutes later, I wake up to this just moving around on my bed, just moving around all this. And, I, and, I, and I'm like, what is it? Both sons are in the bed playing games. And it's like a few minutes later and everything inside of me was just so angry. So just I felt so disrespected. You don't care about my sleep. And so I picked my son up. I walked him across the hallway. I set him down in the room and I shut the door. And Tina looked at me and she said, what is wrong with you? I said, I'm angry. She said, what are you so angry for? And I said, and it was like a heart check moment. I said, man, my heart is just raw. What, like, like I, what I should have done is in grace considered my boys and their hearts before my sleep. But I was driven by selfishness. So there's that moment where you're just like, I need to repent in front of my sons. And so I brought them back in, sat them on my lap told them to forgive me for my short temper and my anger. And we had this tender moment. And, of course, you know, I love you, Dad. Real happy, ready to play now. And it was, it was a good close, but it was a rough start. And I just see, and, and that's a mild example, right? I mean, I, I, I have seen much worse than that in my, in my own heart.
Much worse. And you, and, and, and you, you read, the, I love the Psalms because they're just so real to who we are. I mean, like, I just read this, I'm like, I could write this narrative, not as well, but like, these words fit me. This is me. And I walk out and just think, I'm so grateful for the Psalms, I want to live there because they speak into my situation so poignantly. And the language here is very transparent. David is admitting to hiding his sin, to concealing his wickedness. And, and, and we all do this. We hide our sins from each other. Right? We, even from our own spouses, from our, our friends, from our community group, from our church, from our uh, pastors, whatever. We just hide our sins. Uh, Noel, a man named Noel Coward, uh, he, the, the famous playwright, uh, pulled an interesting prank. Uh, here's what he did. He sent an identical note, really fascinating, to 20 of the most famous men in London. Okay? And the anonymous note read this simply. It said this, quote, Everybody has found out what you're doing. If I were you, I would get out of town. And supposedly, okay, the way, the way history it goes or is penned, all 20 men actually left town. And, and that's funny because, but, but it's serious too. You're thinking about this. Why, why does something like it happen? It happens because guilt is the dread of the past and pain that wells up within our heart because we've committed an offense or we failed to do something right. And, and we just feel like this man, like I'm just nervous that somebody else is going to find out what I've done because I can feel it so like it's so palpable inside of me. And we just, we just, you know, it's like when, or the other one that gets you every time is when somebody says, hey, we need to talk. And you're just like, well, what, what do we need to talk about? Well, I, I don't want to, I don't want to get into it right now, but I need to meet with you tomorrow. Well, I mean, that, that, that's pain. You're talking about 24 hours of just what did I do? And, you know, and you're thinking about the worst possible scenario. And then, so, and that we're just driven like this. We're just, that's just who we are innate. We feel this. And David is trying to cover up his guilt to prevent shame. But it was futile. As Luke 8 says, uh, For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. And, and this is what Adam and Eve did. After they sinned in Genesis 3, they what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together in order to cover themselves. They, they, they were conscious of being exposed before God, but Adam and Eve's covering, of course, was not enough to take their guilt before God. They needed a better covering. They needed a God covering. And to symbolize this, what does God do? He clothes them with skins from an animal. And what God is showing them, actually, in doing that is he's saying that true covering for sin requires the shedding of blood. So I've got to kill an animal in order for your sin to be covered. So here's skins, and these skins came as a result of bloodshed. And that's what we see at the very beginning of Genesis. And we hear echoes of Hebrews 9.22 in that, that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Now, back to David in verse 3. He's keeping silent about his sin. He's, he's hiding it. He's trying to cover it up. He's, he's busy just suppressing it. But notice what God is doing. While David is working to conceal his sin, God is working to bring it out into the open. While David is running from God, God is running after David. While, Dave, while David is silent, God is speaking. In verse 4, 
David says, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. God is using David's sin of hiding to reveal his need for him. God, God is making David miserable. It's preparation for repentance. And, and notice that God is the one who starts this process. He's the one who takes initiative. And I just want to encourage some of you parents this morning who maybe your, your son or your daughter, maybe they're older, or maybe they're younger. You're just having a hard time with them. They're lost. They're rebellious. They're far, far, far away from God. And I just want to encourage you this morning that even though your kids, maybe their hearts are hardened or your spouse or whoever you're thinking about this morning, maybe their hearts are hardened. But, but I want you to hear me this morning is that you're not running out of hope. And here's why, is that your hope for them is not tied to your parenting. It's not tied to your, to your being a perfect mom or a perfect dad. Your hope for your children is tied to God. To the fact that God will run after them. God will meet them with His grace. God will run them down and He can do what you can never do. Because through this power of the Spirit of God, He can regenerate hearts in a moment. So all you need is God. You just need God. And, and, and again, maybe, maybe some of you are here as a non-Christian. You're exploring Christianity. Uh, and, and maybe you've been silent about your sin. Maybe you've been hiding from, from God. Maybe you've been running. And I just want to say to you, if you have ears to hear what I'm saying, then, then, then God may be coming after you this morning. So I would say, open your ear, hear his voice. The Bible says, seek the Lord while he may be found. Come to him while he is near. Do you hear that voice? Seek him while he may be found. Come to him while he may be near. And, and what does he require of you? Joseph Hart, in his song, sum, summarizes it so well. He says, the only thing he requires is that you feel your need of him. That's that, that's that humble posture of repentance that says god i can't do this i've got to have you would you help me listen to the rest of the words of that song come you sinners poor and needy weak and wounded sick and sore jesus ready stands to save you full of pity love and power view him prostrate in the garden on the ground your maker lies on the bloody tree behold him sinner will this not suffice Behold, the incarnate God ascended, pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him. Venture holy. Let no other trust intrude. And here's what you need to say with the rest of the song. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. You know what that is? That's conversion. That's what conversion looks like. And I, and I tr- pray that someone this morning is saying, that right there is what I'm going to do. Right there, I'm going to run into Jesus' arms. Well, we've seen that man sins in three ways, but, but, but when God shows us our need of him, what do we do? We repent in three ways. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity, the iniquity of my sin. So we see here, man repents in three ways. Do you see the three things there? David does, number one, he acknowledges his sin. Number two, he does not cover his iniquity. And number three, he 
confesses his transgressions to the Lord. And these are the same words for sin used in verse verses 1 and 2. Sin, iniquity, and transgression. So first, what does he do? He acknowledges his sin. He acknowledges that his arrow fell way, way short of God's target. The second thing he does is he stops hiding the crookedness and the guilt with inside of him. But instead, he brings that crookedness to light. And the third thing he does is he lowers his raised fist in God's face. He lowers it by confessing his transgression and following God's ways. And that's what repentance looks like. It's those three things. And and, and the simple question for us this morning is, have you done that? Have you... Have you seen the airball of your supposed righteousness and how far short it fell from the hoop of God's standards? Have you seen how crooked you are? Have you laid down your pride and exposed the crookedness in front of both God and man? And then have you have you lowered your clenched fist away from God and realized that that your little pellet gun, your little BB gun of rebellion and self-made authority Looks so silly next to God's tank, next to God's massive, massive holiness. Can you imagine a picture of a guy thinking he's so awesome? And he walks up to a big tank in the U.S. military with a little water gun. He's like, I'm going to get you guys. And there's just this huge tank staring down at his face like, are you serious, man? And that's what we do when we walk up to God with pride. I mean, it's, it's even worse than that. I'm just trying to find a word picture that just gives us an idea of how foolish this is. So do what David did. Acknowledge your failure. Stop hiding your sin. Confess that God's way is right. And then do you see that little word there in the text that says Selah? Selah. So it's in the margin next to verse 5. That just means pause and just take notice. Just take a moment and just reflect on this. And so let's just, do, let's just do that right now. Can we just stop for a minute and just pray? Let's say la. Let's just pray for just a minute. Let me pray. Father, we, we stop. We stop here. And we want to just say with David that this is who we are by nature. This is us. We, 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 we are, we have covered our sin. We've tried to hide it we have we have kept silent our bones have wasted we have groaned we have felt the heaviness of your hand upon us we have seen our strength dry up we have failed to acknowledge our sin we have we have tried to cover our iniquity we have failed to confess our transgression before you but god we stopped this morning and we want to do the exact opposite We want to acknowledge our sin to you. We don't want to cover our iniquity. We want to confess our transgression before you, believing that as we do that, you will forgive the iniquity of our sin. And that we can say with David, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So, God, we pray for a fresh cleansing this morning. We do not want to run up to you in brazen boldness and arrogance with our little water gun and act like we have anything to boast in. No, we fall down in front of the tank of your righteousness and we beg you afresh for mercy this morning. Thank you for this text as we continue through it and we see now the psalm shift. Pray that hope would rise.
as we see Christ and all that he's done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, folks, the psalm shifts here, okay? It shifts. It shifts in tone and hope rises, and we see that God blesses us in three ways upon confession. So the gospel's coming, okay? The good news is coming. What happens uh, when we repent of our sin? What, what happens when we stop trying to hide? Does God shake his head at us and, and say, well, sorry, man, you're, you're, you're just too late. You know, I, I put up with you long enough and it's too late. Does God rebuke us for being so presumptuous as to ask for forgiveness? No. You know what God does? He does exactly what we ask for. When we ask for forgiveness, he forgives us. And you know what? He doesn't do it begrudgingly. He immediately and decisively forgives us. God stands ready to forgive. And he does that in three ways. Look at verse one. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. There it is. He forgives transgressions. He covers sin. And he does not count our iniquity against us. It's amazing the parallelism here in this text. He does not count it against us. Praise God. When the burden of sin was weighing down on David, he acknowledged his sin before God. And God lifted his burden. Just lifted it. Our burden was lifted at the cross as Jesus places it on his own shoulders. Think of these, think of these uh, words in the, in the song that we sing. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I, I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. I, I don't bear my sin anymore. Jesus bore it for me. Now, now we know why David starts the psalm with, blessed is the man whose sin is forgiven. Blessed, another word for happy. Happy is the man. Anyone, anyone happy today? Anyone happy today that their sin has been forgiven? Now, I realize that the first 20 minutes of this sermon was like sad and morose and dark and sort of, man, this is horrible. I see my sin. But, but, shift, shift with David here in the psalm. Take a moment. Turn the page. Is anyone here happy now? Happy that God has stepped in and rescued you in the midst of your darkness? has forgiven you, has won the day, has achieved victory and triumph in your life. This is not ultimately a sad psalm. This is a happy psalm. This is a gospel psalm. It begins with celebration and it ends with celebration. And think about this. That word happy or blessed in verse 1 is spoken to perfect people? People that have never messed up? No, it's spoken to sinners. Great sinners. Sinners who have repented and found forgiveness in a gracious God. Tim Keller says, Jesus is the only Lord who, if you receive him, will fulfill you completely. And when you fail him, will forgive you eternally. And that's why, you know, you can stack up the Christian God against any. And so he, you know, I mean... Can you just imagine the difference between this and what Islam teaches? It's just, I mean, that, that's just profound. That's profound. Okay, so why, that's, let's herald this gospel. Okay, because this is what people need. 
so desperately. All right. So number four, then God relates to us in three ways. So if you're forgiven, covered and clean, then you have a new and restored relationship with God. And that means that God relates to you in new ways. And the text mentions again, how many? Three, three in verses seven and eight. God becomes three things for us, a hiding place, a protector and a counselor. First, David says, you are a hiding place for me. What is a hiding place? Verse six helps us. Uh, in verse six, David speaks about this rush of great water. And in the Bible, of course, water is often used to refer to the judgment of God. And David used the same metaphor to, descri- to describe God's wrath. Just like the floodwaters of Noah's day, the judgment is coming. And so David says in verse 6, let everyone who is godly offer prayers to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters or the wrath of God, they shall not reach him. And, and, And the waters of God's wrath will not reach us in Christ because we have a what? A hiding place from God's Anger and that hiding place in verse seven is Jesus. He's saving us from the wrath of God. So do you see this is really a, quite a profound insight because David is teaching us something that's very, very counterintuitive. OK, he's teaching us that confessing our sin and bringing it into the open is actually the only way to cover it. He's teaching us that coming out of our own hiding is actually the only way that we can really hide from God's wrath. So Christ is our hiding place. If you hide yourself, the wrath of God is for you. But if you come out of hiding and let Jesus hide you, you will be saved from the wrath of God. But then secondly, he protects us from trouble. Verse seven, he stands in the way of all that threatens us. We're hidden under the shadow of his wings and he preserves us spiritually. He preserves our faith. And so Jesus said in John 10, what did he say? My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So he he protects us. He he hides us. He he protects us. And then finally, verse eight, he counsels us. I will instruct you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And notice the intimacy of this language with with no introduction or transition. The speaker changes identity. I mean, because until now, it's been David that's been speaking about God. But all of a sudden, all of a sudden here. God, in verse 8, is speaking to David. And God says, I, God, will counsel you, David, with my eye upon you. God, God is our counselor. Jesus promised his disciples that that a counselor would come, right? The Holy Spirit would teach them all things. And so the Holy Spirit teaches us. He counsels us with his word. He, he, he uses his word to open our minds, to expand our understanding. I trust that's happening right now. How how humble and majestic is our God that he would think about this personally disciple us. You say, well, you know, I I really just want to be discipled. I want some guy to invest in me, to pour his life into my life. Well, how about this? How about how about God counsels you with his eye upon you? How about God is your chief discipler through the word of God? How about every day you get a wake up fresh in the morning Knowing that God is counseling you with his eye upon you. He's guiding you in the way that you should go. He is taking personal ownership 
for your protection, for your hiding for in him, for your security, and for your direction and wisdom in life. He's taking personal ownership over all those things. There's a world of difference between the most gifted teacher in the world explaining the Bible and the Holy Spirit of God opening and illuminating that word of God to you in that quiet place in the morning when you are praying and seeking him. There's a world of difference between those two things. And your heart can be changed and transformed through that. That's, that's what we want. And then finally, finally, this is how the psalm ends. Is because of all this, we should respond to God in how many ways? Three. Three ways. Verses 9 through 11. Verse 11. Be glad. Rejoice. And shout for joy. And friends, I, I just want to, I want us to be, I was thinking about this today. I want us to be, can, can we be playful here for a minute? I want us to be the most joyful church in this city. Okay? It's not a competition, but I'm just saying, I'm responsible for, we are responsible for this body. Okay? You're responsible for this body. We look after each other. Can we just be the most joyful people? The most joyful church in our city, the, the, the deeper we apprehend what God has done, the happier that will make us. And what, what a psalm this is in reflection. I mean, wow. I mean, amazing story. David and Bathsheba, one of the great cover-ups in human history. And his cover-up, his cover-up failed. It failed because it was conquered by a much greater cover-up. The covering up of our sin by God. And that's the great cover-up in human history. God covers our sin. So, so do you see the progression here? First, we're guilty of transgression, sin, and iniquity. But God drives us to repentance so that we acknowledge our sin. We stop covering it. We confess it to the Lord. And when we do that, God responds to us by forgiving us, giving us a real covering, and not counting our sin against us. And as a result of all that, he becomes our hiding place. He becomes our protector. He becomes our counselor. And a result of all that, we respond by being glad by rejoicing and, yes, shouting for joy. That's our response. So does anyone still need some incentive this morning to shout for joy? In the shadow of the cross, Jesus exhorts us to be glad and to rejoice. Because the day of deliverance has come. We are on the other side of Calvary. Forgiveness is real. The Savior has risen. Sin has been conquered. Death has been defeated. And the shepherd rejoices with his sheep. God surrounds us with shouts of deliverance. So, I mean, do you feel the love of God? Please understand, dear friends, that God doesn't want to correct us with bit and bridle, as the end of the psalm says. Okay, The, the whole purpose of a bit and bridle is to just... It's to keep nudging somebody in the right direction. God doesn't want to lead us like that. Okay, He will, he will, but he doesn't want to. God doesn't want to discipline us to keep us near him. He'll do that if necessary, but, but that's not what he wants. That's not God's heart. Let me tell you what God has designed to keep us near him. It's this, the kindness, love, and grace of God. That's our motivation for obedience. Because the only motive strong enough to keep you near the Savior is a deep apprehension and recognition of his love for you. Like when you really understand the depth to which God has gone to rescue you and to save you and to redeem you, that will create in you new affection for God that will keep you motivated to obey him. So, I mean, one of the fundamental problems why we sin and live in sin is because we are not reflecting 
on God's grace in our life enough. I mean, just stop and think about all that God has done for you in light of all that you are. And that will not motivate you to sin. That will motivate you to obedience when you understand what God has done for you. And when you understand what God continues to do for you, your eyes will be fixed on him. So, what, what is God, by the way, just what is God doing for you right now? Well, it's right there in verse 7. Look at it. He's standing over us with shouts of deliverance. That's what he's doing. He saved you from the wrath of God and he's shouting. God is shouting. He's shouting words of freedom and deliverance over us like a slave. So anybody seen the movie Amistad? Very moving movie. So think about these slaves. Now imagine that somebody goes to free those slaves and the one who freed them Okay, you would expect the slaves to be shouting, we've been freed, we've been freed. But actually, in this case, the one who freed the slaves is shouting, you are free. Shouting. And that's what God is doing for us in verse 7. He's standing over us, shouting words of deliverance over us. So let's shout back and say, yes, we receive the freedom that you've given us. Yes, we praise you for what you've done for us. Let's shout back and he's shouting words of freedom and deliverance. Look with the eyes of faith and there you'll see God singing over you in Psalm 32. It reminds me of Zephaniah 3. The Lord your God is with you. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with loud singing. And that's what's happening right now in our church this morning. And guess what? That party, my friends, is just getting started. It's just getting started. And it will never end. And honestly, I think that's all the motivation you need this week to follow Jesus with all of your heart. Isn't that true? Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for these stories that are real. History. It's history. It's fact. This happened. You redeemed David. You brought him up out of the mire and out of the, the miry bog of his brokenness. And there you delivered him. And, and how gracious and kind you are. And so, Lord, this morning as we reflect on our own story of redemption. And what you've done for us. Would you move us. Motivate us. Change us. Shape us. Renew us. Remake us. Give us a clean heart, O God. Renew within us a steadfast spirit. Take not your spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. Cleanse us afresh this morning. Thrill our hearts again. And may we approach this week with shouts of joy, with deliverance, with freedom, knowing that you it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. We honor you and praise you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.